0: Okay, great. Good morning. Um, If uh, if you've not met me before, my name's Rob. Um, As Lydra said, I'm one of the leaders here at the church. Uh, It's a privilege um, to stand up here and and bring the Word of God to you. Uh, If you're visiting today, um, just to let you know, we are nearing the end of a series we've been looking at for the whole of this year um, on the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians. Um, So we've only got one more chapter after today, um, but please don't switch off. Please don't feel like you've missed it. It's not like coming into a film with like 10 minutes left. You know, um, I will recap kind of the key bits, but each week we're looking at a separate uh, part of these books, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and seeing what is God saying out of that chapter. So... The other ones that you uh, haven't heard, um, and for everyone, they are all online, so I encourage you to go online and look at the preachers. Um, and also, we've done some recap videos, which are on YouTube, which um, sort of just summarize the key sections of those books. So if you haven't had a chance to, to look at those, I would encourage you to. But just in terms of recap, where you join us today, Paul, um, who wrote these books to the church in Corinth, is defending his role as an apostle. An apostle is a person who has authority over a church for teaching and support, to encourage them, to challenge them, and perhaps even to bring discipline. While he's not been with them in Corinth, uh, people in the church have, have come in and have challenged his leadership while he's not there. And they're trying to claim that they're better than he is, that he's not worth listening to, that they're more special than he is. And they're turning people away from him in the church and his role saying he's inferior, weak, can't be trusted. And as we see today, Paul's halfway through a, a, an argument with them to defend himself. And he calls them uh, false apostles. And he's trying to defend himself through, uh, through boasting. And he's at because they've been boasting about why they're more, inspe- more important. And so he's now having to respond by boasting about himself. But let's be clear, he's not boasting about himself to make him look good. It's not an ego trip where he's trying to say, look at me. And that's important to remember. As Jenny said last week, he's defending himself because actually he's defending the gospel. His teaching about Jesus, about salvation, it's wrapped up in who he is as an apostle. If they reject him and his leadership, then potentially they reject what he's been teaching. And then they could fall for anything they hear. And as we were reminded last week, Paul absolutely loves his church. He'll fight for them, and that's why he's defending them. He's jealous for them, and so has to stand up for himself to make sure that they're getting the correct teaching. So we're looking at 2 Corinthians 12 today. Um, if you've got it in your Bible, I encourage you to find it. If you haven't, it should be behind me. It's a long passage. I'm going to read the whole lot, because it's important that we reread it all. But I'm going to focus mainly on the first half. So 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears of me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from coming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities... For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have been a fool, you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super-apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you, with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favoured than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong." For for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek what is not yours, but you. For children are not obliged to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and I got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come I may not fi- you may not Sorry I'll start again. For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find find you not as I wish. And that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarrelling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. So again, it's a big passage we're looking at today. Some famous verses. As I said, I'm going to focus on the first half I don't know about you, but when I read that passage, it leaves me with a lot of questions. Who's that man that Paul's boasting about? Who or where, or so? what's or where is the third heaven? What was the thorn? Why did God leave it? And how can you be strong if you're weak at the same time? I'll do my best to address some of those questions. So Paul talks about boasting of visions and revelations. I don't know how you are about uh, your knowledge of, of Greek mythology, There's a famous story about Icarus who flew too close to the sun. I don't know if you know that. As the story goes, Icarus and his father Daedalus were uh, held captive by King Minos. He's the one with the labyrinth and the Minotaur. And he won't let them go. But uh, Daedalus was a master craftsman and he created wings made of feathers and wax. And so they were able to fly away to safety. But instead of just flying straight to safety, Icarus thought, this is amazing. I wonder how high I can go, and so flew closer and closer and closer to the sun. And at the end of the story, you see that the sun's heat melts the wax, the wings fall apart, and he plummets down. And we know the moral of the story, don't we? Don't fly too high or you may come to a bad end. And we're quite used to those stories, aren't we, about um, the morality of of, um, not being too proud of yourself. And Paul explores that in this passage, although with a far more Christian viewpoint, through spiritual experiences that can easily make you feel like you're flying high. Paul shows us that even the most amazing spiritual experiences with God have to be understood in the context of the gospel of grace. So these false teachers must have been boasting about their stories, what they said that God showed them and what they experienced in the spirit. And I'm sure they must have been very impressive to the church, They would have seemed super spiritual compared to the ordinary, everyday Christians. Paul even calls them sarcastically super apostles. You can imagine the boasting. I was praying and I saw this. We were worshiping and then this happened. Aren't I special that God would show me that? That's the kind of boasting that he's trying to respond to. Now, please don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that we should never share amazing stories of what God does and show us. Of course we should, they're encouraging. But the point of this passage is Paul's responding to people who are all about the limelight for themselves and all about people being impressed by them. And that's what Paul's trying to address. So what did happen in this experience? Paul's talking about this other man, but in case you didn't pick up the clues, he's actually talking about himself. Even though he says, a man I knew, actually, he is that man who was caught up in paradise all those years ago. Now, there's no other record of this event. but as it says in verse 7, this was clearly an incredible experience that Paul had. One that he felt was far, that surpassed anything that anyone else could share. And Paul would have had many visions and revelations from God. But this one of all of them seems to stand out. In his, all his time as a believer, he still looks back at 14 years ago, this incredible experience. But he's trying to tell it in a way that doesn't make him sound like he's boasting like those other apostles. And so he doesn't actually go into much detail like kind of people do when they're boasting. He doesn't really say that much in, in there. What he does tell us is he's taken into the very presence of God in heaven where God dwells. And that's what he means by the third heaven or paradise. He's talking about the one place. But why does he call it the third heaven? That's an unusual phrase, isn't it? Just to clarify, the, word, the Greek word for heaven could have meant more than one thing. So you'll find this in the Bible. Sometimes heaven is the sky, where the birds are. Sometimes heaven is space, where the planets and the stars are. And also the same word is used to show God's dwelling place, heaven. So it's not like there's three layers of heaven. If you go through sky, you'll get to space, and then you get to God. It's not like that. But the word was used in three different ways. So Paul's just trying to to clarify to us that he wasn't just in the sky or space. He was in the presence of God. So Paul's being specific about that, that he went to meet with God. But he doesn't know how or exactly how that happened for him, whether he was physically there or whether he was out of his body. He says he doesn't know. But he seems quite content, doesn't he? He says God knows. So if Paul didn't know, then I'm not going to venture any more thoughts on it. We can leave it there. One thing he does share with us is that he heard things in heaven, incredible things that God told him, But again, he says he can't repeat it to us. Why not? Again, we don't know. We're left wondering about that detail too. Let's be honest, the details are a little bit vague, aren't they? But I think that's probably the point. Because he's defending himself in the face of opposition. People who are boasting all about themselves and saying, look what happened to me. And so he's trying to share his experience, but without sounding like he's boasting too. And that's why he talks about himself in the third person. I knew this man. He's trying to do everything he can to avoid boasting about himself. Uh, Lenski, in his book, calls this a boastless boast, which I think sums it up pretty well. And that's something perhaps to think about in life groups. How do we have a boastless boast of God? As we'll see next, Paul wants us to see that even these spiritual experiences are great. We mustn't let them become the main thing or allow them to cause us to be proud of ourselves. These spiritual experiences do happen throughout church history and still today, God speaks and reveals himself in amazing ways. People have seen visions that God has shown them. People have experienced angels. You hear about clouds filling the room, the presence of God. People meet with God in in dreams. People have witnessed miracles before their eyes, heard the voice of God. These things do happen. And furthermore, in verse 12, Paul talks about signs and wonders, which are spiritual gifts given to the church. And he talks about his use of them and his role as an apostle. And here at this church, we believe that those spiritual gifts are continued today. Speaking in tongues, which is a heavenly language. We believe people can be physically healed. We heard a testimony about that this morning. We believe God speaks to us prophetically, and that was a few of those were shared today. It's important that we remember that they're called signs and wonders for a reason. Because they are a sign. And what's the point of a sign? Except to point you to something else. When you travel somewhere, like imagine you're going on holiday, you don't get to the sign and stop and have your holiday at the sign, do you? You follow the signs to where you really are supposed to be going. And it's the same with spiritual experiences, visions, revelations, spiritual gifts. They should point us back to God. If we allow them to point to ourselves, well, we've missed the point, haven't we? Paul, on the other hand here, wants to remind us in this passage that these experiences are not just to make us special, but to demonstrate God's power and bring him all the glory. And if anyone had reason to boast, it was Paul, wasn't it? But as we'll see next, God helped him to avoid becoming boastful of himself, even after everything he went through. And that brings us to verse 7, the thorn. What was the thorn? The big question. If you're hoping for a definitive answer from me today, then I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed. Because I don't know. There are a number of ideas that theologians have talked about for years and years, saying it could be this, it could be that. I'll share a few of them, but actually there's no consensus. We simply don't know for sure what that was that Paul said. Some say it was Paul's psychological struggles, so his grief about his earlier persecution of the church, continuing temptations perhaps, or his anxiety over the church. So it could have been a psychological thorn. Others say the thorn was his opponents, it was people, the persecution he faced. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, in Numbers, you read that God talks about the thorn in the side, and that was referring to the enemies of God's people. Sometimes you can interpret the messenger of Satan as a person. So that's why some people say that the thorn was his opponents, people giving him uh, difficulties. Some say it was a physical affliction. You know, it does talk about the thorn in the flesh. So a lot of people say it was a flesh thing, it was a physical thing that he had in his body. Perhaps poor eyesight. People think it might have been malaria or migraines that he struggled with. And others say it was a demonic harassment, because it does mention Satan after all. So those are the kind of common uh, themes that people often say the thorn must have been. But as I said, if far more smarter people have not been able to agree with it over all these years, then I'm not going to tell you what it is, because I can't. And if you think about Paul and how much he wrote of the New Testament, he's not a man who is short on words, is he? He's not a man who's not afraid of going into detail and spending chapters and chapters over the same thing. So the fact that he doesn't go into detail, I think, is important. I actually think it's better for us that way because it forces us to think about the why behind the thorn rather than what the thorn actually is. Otherwise, we might give it too much importance, get fixated on that thing, and think, well, have I got that or have I not got that? By being less uh, specific, I think it actually helps us to relate to it more as we think about what our thorn might be. So, what's important is why God gave him this thorn. He says it twice. It was to keep him from becoming conceited. In other words, to keep him from becoming excessively proud of himself or even vain. Whatever that thorn was, God used it to keep Paul humble and grounded in him. See, the false apostles would have been boasting about their experiences and revelations. They would have been puffed up in their own pride and, and wanting everyone to look at them. And Paul shows this very honestly that he could easily do that too. He could easily become puffed up with his own pride of his own things that he experienced. But God dealt with it through this thorn. It was a constant reminder of his human weakness, which Jenny also talked about last week. If you've ever had to clear thorns from your garden or brambles, you'll know only too well how sharp a thorn is and how much it hurts. The amount of times I've had to clear them in the garden and thought I've got that thorn out only to go to the next activity and still it's still in there and it still hurts. I think it's a bit like when you get a stone in your shoe. Every step you're reminded, aren't you? It's not like something you can just ignore. We were watching a film recently um, about a man who suffered from a condition where he would pass out if his emotions got too high. Um, it was a romantic comedy. It was supposed to be a bit silly. But... For him, he would pass out if he got too joyful. And what's interesting is a moment where he agreed to go out on a date with this lady he really liked, and obviously was worried about becoming too joyful on the date. So he strategically would put a drawing pin inside his shoe. And so whenever he felt his emotions rising, stab his foot, bring himself down again. And I think that's in a similar way what this thorn is like, isn't it, for Paul? To keep him from getting too high on himself, That thorn will keep him humble. And I think it was really interesting, um, the picture that Andy brought to us today about shadows giving depth. I think that ties in really strongly, doesn't it? That actually those shadows in our lives are actually things that, that God works through. And I'll talk about them more in a minute. So I wonder, are you aware of any ways that God might be trying to humble you right now? I wonder if you're aware of any thorns that perhaps God is using in your life. Moving on, thinking about power in weakness that Paul talks about. In verse 8, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this thorn, "'that it should leave me. "'But he said to me, "'My grace is sufficient for you, "'for my power is made perfect in weakness. "'Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses "'so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. "'For the sake of Christ, then, "'I am content with my weaknesses, "'insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities.' When I am weak, then I am strong. How do you react to difficult times in your life? We've got to be honest, there's not one of us here who doesn't face difficulties, pains, disappointments. We'd be lying if we said everything's fine all the time, wouldn't we? So it's important to consider how Paul responds to it. And he does two things. First, he prays, he brings it straight to God in prayer. He knows that God can change the situation and he pleads with God to take it away from him. And this should be our response too. As the old hymn goes, we should take it to the Lord in prayer. But what about three times? Paul prayed three times and stopped. Should we pray three times and stop? Well, the Bible encourages us to pray continually. One Thessalonians, for example, says to pray without ceasing. Jesus taught the parable of a persistent widow who just kept on and on. Uh, And and, and it reminds us, as Jesus explains, that we should pray persistently and not lose heart. So for Paul, he received a, a specific personal word that God said to him, no. And that's why he stopped praying about it. And God may say that to us when we bring it to God. He might say, no, it's staying. But he also might answer differently. See, God wants a personal relationship with every one of us. It's not... Like prayer is a one size fits all. So let's continue to pray into our situations and believe that God is sovereign over all things. And let's listen for his specific word to us. But let's remember, he doesn't always answer the way perhaps we would hope he does. After Paul prays, he then praises. Paul's response to God's word really shows his trust, doesn't it? And his faith in God. He doesn't just accept it through gritted teeth. I think I might. Okay, God, I'll live with it. He doesn't do that at all, but actually uses it as an opportunity to praise God and thank him for it. He knows that God is working for his good through this. As a parent, I've had to say no to my children a lot, and I can't think of many times where they've said thank you as a result. But Paul does, doesn't he? That's the challenge. God said no, and he said, okay, thank you, Lord. In his book, uh, God Knows You're Human, Terry Virgo sums up this section, I think, really well and challenges us to learn from this prayer. Terry writes this, Since God appoints circumstances to change your character, don't fight everything that comes your way. By all means, ask God to intervene, but if he does not, learn the lesson intended. Let him use it to form the image of his son in you and rejoice as you go through it. Let's be honest, this is a challenge, isn't it? To respond in that way to difficult times. I say that for myself personally. As a family, we've known numerous times of difficulty and challenge. Even recently, we've really struggled with periods of unemployment and physical conditions that we've prayed for that haven't been healed yet. And it's in times like these when you just pray more. And actually it forces you to rely on God because it's out of your control. So what was the turning point for Paul? He went from praying about it and asking God to take it and then he ended up praising God for it. The turning point was grace. Paul refused to share much of the details of what he heard in heaven except for one thing that the Lord said to him. The Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Tom Wright, in his book on uh, Corinthians, he says this This is one of the most comforting, reassuring, healing, and steadying words of the Lord ever recorded. I find it hard to argue against that. One of the most comforting, reassuring, healing, and steadying words of the Lord ever recorded. Because grace reminds us it's all about God and it's not about us. Grace, remind, grace is a gift undeserved favor that we can't earn god loves us because that's who he is not because we did anything right i'm reminded of um, if you've not read it a fantastic book on grace by philip yancey what's so amazing about grace and he famously says that we, we hear this a lot he famously said there is nothing we can do to make god love us more there's nothing we can do to make god love us less that's grace Terry Virgo says, grace is the loving arms of God who knows what to do and knows what we need. God will not reject us and our weaknesses, but wants us to be in relationship with him continually. See, grace shifts our focus from us to him. And this is complete opposite of what Paul's opponents were doing. They were all about themselves. They wanted all the glory. In fact, grace is the center of everything Paul teaches, isn't it? It's the heart of the gospel. To be saved, we come to a point where we realize that our efforts actually don't impress God. Our achievements, our abilities, our successes, even being good, it's never enough. Only Christ was ever good enough. And it's when we realize that we can then be in a position to accept forgiveness and accept that Christ died in our place. The the lower we humble ourselves, the more God's grace is displayed in us. Amen? Amen. But more than just the reminder of grace, God declares that his power is made perfect in our weakness. And that's why Paul is able to say, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. There's a clear connection between weakness and strength. We see a lot of this through the, through the book of Corinthians. I just want to start by something that I think it's not, but it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the weaker we are in ourselves, the stronger we become in ourselves. It's not about our strength, our human strength. It's completely opposite. It's about God's strength that is at work in us. And also, it's not about sin as weaknesses. What I mean by that is if you look at the Corinthians themselves, consider all the areas that they struggled in. We've seen a lot of that over the last year, haven't we? That's why this series is called Holy Living in Sin City. Think about just this chapter. Verse 14 shows there's an issue with money. Verse 21, there's issues with sexual sin. The list in verse 20, quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder. If those are the sorts of things that Paul means by weaknesses, then surely the Corinthians should have been the strongest people ever. So it's not that. Paul's showing us that God's power is demonstrated when we realize our weaknesses and allow God to work in us. Phil Moore, in his book, I still highly recommend this book on Corinthians, In this section about Corinthians 12, he titles his chapter as God Wants to Get You Naked, which I think is quite provocative. What does he mean by that? I'll explain. He means that God clothes people with power when they realize they're nothing without him. Think about those TV shows, if you've ever seen one, where people want a makeover. They don't turn up and then just get more clothes to put on top of their old clothes. They've got to be stripped off of everything they were wearing before. Their old wardrobe's got to go before they can get some new stuff. Or think about when you change the bed. You don't just put a clean sheet on top of the old one, do you? You have to strip it off completely before you can put something clean on. Even more extreme, think about a house renovation. You've got to be quite ruthless at what needs to come out. And they get very messy before they get better, don't they? But sometimes, stripping it back to nothing is what's needed. George and I, we've done a few house renovations and they're really hard. But the thing that's got us through them is knowing actually there's better to come. And that's why Phil Moore says that God wants to get us naked. God demonstrates this through the story of Gideon, which is in the book of Judges. It says in Judges 7:2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people, who are, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. What does he mean? If you don't know the story of Gideon, it's a wonderful story in the Old Testament where God used Gideon to lead the army into battle. There were 32,000 of them with Gideon. And God says, that's too many. Because God knows they're going to be victorious, but explains to them that actually there's a danger that there's so many of them, it'll be an easy battle. And then they'll say it was them who won it. It was their own military strength that was the reason they won. And so God tells Gideon, send some home and then send some more home. And in the end, from 32,000, they're left with 300. And then God instructs Gideon and the men of what to do. They're to surround the Midianites' camp at night with a torch in one hand and a trumpet in the other, not even a sword. And then God causes the Midianites to fight amongst themselves and run. Gideon and his army were completely victorious, but not because of themselves, but because of God. And so God was able to strip Gideon right back so that there was no reason why they could boast about their human efforts. They were forced to rely on God's power to work through them. And so back to Paul, that's why he chose to boast of his earthly weaknesses to demonstrate God's power and grace instead of boasting about himself or his spiritual experiences. I relate to this myself personally, every day I think, if I've been honest, I really struggle with my self-confidence and it really holds me back at times and I end up getting very anxious, very nervous. Standing up here is probably the hardest thing if I'm honest, but it's something that I'm forced to bring to God because actually I believe God's got work for me to do and he's gonna use me. And so I have to completely strip myself off and say, God, I can't do this on my own and I have to rely on his Holy Spirit to fill me. So any confidence you see in me, it's not me. And I just wanted to share that again, like Paul, I'm trying not to stand here and boast. Please don't hear me boasting. But I'm just trying to say, I relate to it on an everyday way. I must pray this sort of prayer umpteen times a day because I know that I can't do it myself. And that's why Paul, and hopefully us, can say, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. In other words, when you admit that you are weak in yourself, then you are strong in God. And that's what Paul's trying to show us in this passage. Can I invite the worship team back up, please? In closing, just to recap Paul's opponents were putting themselves up high on pedestals, weren't they? And Paul's trying to show us in this passage how easy it would have become even for him to think too highly of himself, to boast of his experiences, his achievements, his abilities. And we need to be careful to not boast about ourselves, even the things that God does through us. Paul reminds us that we need to bring ourselves low, admit our weaknesses, and even thank God for them. And then we can run into grace As we see God's power demonstrated through us, I just want to finish by reading from Isaiah 40. It's here that God reminds us of his unlimited power as opposed to ours, and how he clothes us with his own power when we come to him. So it says in Isaiah 40 Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? So let's stand as we worship to finish. Let's wait on the Lord. Let's invite him to clothe us with his power as we bring our weaknesses to him. I'm going to pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you know what's best for us. We thank you, Lord, that you are unlimited in your power. And we just Pray, Lord, that we would be able to be honest with ourselves and you and bring our weaknesses to you and say, Lord, this is where I struggle. This is what I find hard. Help us to bring it to you constantly in prayer and help us to trust in you when you say, no, that's staying. Help us to just fall on your grace daily as we bring our struggles to you, Lord, knowing that through your power we can, we can see success, we can see victory because it's you, not us. I pray, Lord, today, you'd help all of us today to fully rely on you and not ourselves. Help us to put ourselves aside and say, Lord, have your way in us. We surrender to you again, Lord, today. Amen.